Quiet. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 52, King Bradwald and Sutton Who. King Bradwald of East Anglia was born at some time between 560 and 580, exactly when we don't really know. He was the son of Titilla, whom he succeeded, and he was the elder brother of Eni. At some point during the 590s, Radwald married a woman whose name is unknown to us, although Bede does tell us that she was a pagan. By her, he fathered at least two sons, Ragnhera and Eobwald. He also had an older son, Siobert, whose name most closely resembles those typical of the East Saxon dynasty. From this, it was suggested by the medieval historian William of Malmesbury that Radwald's unnamed queen had previously been married to a member of the East Saxon royal family, and that Siobert was therefore Radwald's stepson. For reasons unknown to us, Siobert earned the enmity of his stepfather, who drove him into exile in Gaul, possibly to protect the Wuffingas bloodline. Radwald's reign coincided with the arrival of Augustine of Canterbury and his missionaries from Rome in 597, the subsequent conversions of the kings of Kent and Essex, and the establishment of new bishoprics in these kingdoms. Bede mentions that Radwald himself was swept up in this wave of conversion and received Christian sacraments while in Kent. This happened probably in the early 600s, presumably at the invitation of King Athelbert, who may then have served as Radwald's baptismal sponsor. The date of his conversion is unknown, but it would have occurred after the arrival of the Gregorian mission in 597, since it is claimed that Augustine, who died in about 605, dedicated a church near Ely, it may have followed Sabet's conversion fairly swiftly. Likely this conversion was part of a larger diplomatic project, undertaken by Radwald to secure good relations with his neighbours. Just as Radwald's marriage to a member of the East Saxon royal dynasty helped to form a marriage alliance between East Anglia and Essex, so too his conversion in Kent would have affiliated him with Athelbert. In East Anglia, though, Radwald's conversion was not universally accepted by his household or by his queen, and Radwald's own commitment to the exclusive claims of Christianity seems to have been somewhat suspect. Bede alleges that he maintained a temple in which he kept two altars, one dedicated to pagan gods and the other to Christ. Bede, writing decades later, describes how Eildwulf of East Anglia, the grandson of Radwald's brother Eni, recalled seeing the temple when he was a boy growing up in Radwald's court. Radwald's example is a case of what is known as syncretism, which refers to the mixing of different schools of thought. Syncretism is possible in many spheres, but it is particularly apparent in the realm of religion, especially polytheistic religion. There, syncretism is often manifested in the worship of gods from different traditions or the mixing of different religious practices. It was particularly apparent in the world of ancient Rome, where various non-Roman cults, such as those of Attis, Isis, Mithras, and even Christianity itself, were often mixed into a Roman worldview, either via the practice of interpretatio romana, in which a god was identified as another face or aspect of one of the Dei Consentes, the Latin title for the Roman versions of the Greek Olympians, 
or in which a new god was created by fusing two or more deities into a new being. This latter option being particularly popular in Hellenic and then Roman Egypt, where the cults of gods such as Serapis, a hybrid of Osiris, Hades and Apis, and Hermanubis, a fusion of Hermes and Anubis, were particularly popular. Radwald's temple does not seem to fit neatly with either of these more reflective approaches to syncretism, but seems instead to allude simply to his worship of both Christ and the pagan gods side by side, something that we find some references to in several Old Norse sagas from several centuries later. Exactly how this would have worked is not clear, since it seems unlikely that a priest consecrated by the Gregorian mission would willingly engage in such practice. Possibly then, Radwald performed sacrifices himself, or he possibly relied on either a pagan priesthood or some kind of folk Christian clergy to staff his temple, assuming that it existed at all. There may also have been a political motive for Radwald's syncretism, Barbara York argues that Radwald was not willing to fully embrace Christianity because conversion via Athelbert would have meant acknowledging an inferior position to the Kingdom of Kent. Radwald's lack of commitment towards Christianity earned him the enmity of Bede, who regarded him as a renouncer of the faith, and who thus did not speak particularly highly of him in his ecclesiastical history. At some point between 593 and 616, a Northumbrian prince came to Radwald's court seeking refuge from opponents north of the Humber. Edwin, the prince's name, had been driven out of his native kingdom of Dera by Athelfrith, the ruler of Benicia. After a sojourn in Mercia, Edwin sought the protection of Radwald, where he was at least initially received willingly. Radwald promised to protect Edwin, and Edwin lived with the king as one of his royal companions. When news of Edwin's location reached Athelfrith in Northumbria, he sent messengers to Radwald, offering money in return for Edwin's death. But Radwald refused to comply. Athelfrith then sent messengers a second and a third time, offering even greater gifts of silver and promising war if the request was not accepted. Bede says that Radwald then weakened and promised to either kill Edwin or to hand him over to the ambassadors. A subsequent story reported by Bede says that while Radwald considered his options, a stranger visited Edwin and warned him of the impending threat. The stranger was Paulinus, a member of the Gregorian mission, who claimed to have had a vision of Edwin's regaining power in the north. Radwald's pagan queen chastised him for acting in a manner unworthy of a king by considering to kill his guest for money. Ashamed and probably inspired by Edwin's story of visions, Radwald in 616 prepared for war with Athelfrith. The invading force into Northumbria met Athelfrith's armies on the bank of the river Idle in Lindsay. In the brutal battle that followed, Athelfrith was killed, as was Radwald's oldest son. Edwin then assumed authority in Northumbria and drove Athelfrith's sons Oswald and Oswiu into exile. But for more on that, see the episodes on Northumbria. 616 also saw the deaths of Athelbert of Kent and Sabert of Essex. This initiated a period of pagan reaction in the southeast and led 
to a power vacuum in which Radwald and Edwin were keen to step. Subsequently, Bede included Radwald as a Bretwalder, a king with overlordship of all of southern England. With Radwald's support, Edwin was able to exert control over Bernicia to his north, and possibly Radwald's own religious uncertainties contributed to Edwin's own back-and-forth attitude towards Christianity. It was also during Radwald's reign that a small quayside settlement in East Anglia, called Gipeswich, today known as Ipswich, became an important trading centre, receiving imported goods such as pottery and artisans from other trading markets situated around the coast of the North Sea. It was another hundred years before the settlement developed into a full town, but its beginnings were seen as a reflection of the personal power and prosperity that Radwald brought to East Anglia. Radwald is believed to have died around 624. His death can be located only within a few years. He must have reigned for some time after Athelbert died in order for him to have been noted as a Bretwalder. He was succeeded by his pagan son Eopwald, who was later subsequently persuaded to adopt Christianity by Edwin of Northumbria before being unceremoniously murdered. Edwin's missionary influence may suggest that Radwald died prior to his final conversion in 627. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to. 
but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this. It also helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes and transcripts, as well as the opportunity to request specific topics, all by pledging to one of the show's Patreon tiers. And speaking of patrons, thank you so much for your support. Anyway, back to the show. Radwald lived at a time when eminent individuals were buried in barrows at the cemetery of Sutton Hoo, near Woodbridge in Suffolk. The Sutton Hoo Greyfield contained about 20 barrow burials. It was reserved for people who were buried individually with objects that indicated that they had exceptional wealth or prestige. It was used in this way from around 575 to 625 Sutton Hoo is, of course, most famous for its large chambered ship burial, which is associated in a lot of literature with King Radwald. I will, of course, discuss that here, but first of all, I wanted to situate that burial in relation to some of the other burials that we find at Sutton Hoo to give you a sense of what kind of cemetery this is. Martin Carver, an archaeologist who's excavated Sutton Hoo, believes that the cremation burials in the cemetery were among the earliest located there. Two of these were excavated in 1938. Under Mound 3 were the ashes of a man and a horse, placed on a wooden trough or dugout beer, a Frankish ironhead throwing axe, and imported objects from the eastern Mediterranean, including the lid of a bronze ewer, a small carved plaque depicting a winged victory, and fragments of decorated bone. In Mounds 5, 6, and 7, Carver found cremations deposited in bronze bowls. In Mound 5 were also found gaming pieces, small iron shears, a cup, and an ivory box. In Mound 7 were found gaming pieces as well as an iron bucket, a sword belt fitting, and a drinking vessel, together with the remains of horse, cattle, red deer, sheep, and pigs that had all been burnt with the deceased on a funeral pyre. Mound 6 contained more cremated animals, gaming pieces, a sword belt fitting, and a comb. The most impressive of the burials without a chamber is that of a young man who was buried with his horse in Mound 17. The horse would have been sacrificed for the funeral. The man's oak coffin contained his pattern-welded sword on his right side, with his sword belt wrapped around the blade, which had bronze buckles, decorated with gold and garnet cloisonna cell work, two pyramidal strap mounts, and a scabbard buckle. By the man's head was a fire steel and a leather pouch containing rough garnets and a piece of millefiori glass. Around the coffin were two spears, a shield, a small cauldron, and a bronze bowl, a pot, an iron bucket, and some animal ribs. In the northwest corner of the grave, there was a bridle mounted with circular gilt bronze plaques with interlace ornamentation. 
inhumation graves of this kind are known from both England and Germanic continental Europe, with most dating from the 6th or the early 7th century. Interestingly, not all of the bodies buried in the cemetery were of high-status people. It also contained some remains of people who died violently, in some cases by hanging or by decapitation. Often the bones of these burials have not survived, but the flesh had stained the sandy soil. The soil was laminated as digging progressed, so that the emaciated figures of the dead were revealed. Casts were then taken of several of these. The identification and discussion of these so-called execution burials was led by Carver. Two main groups were excavated, with one arranged around mound number five, and the other situated beyond the Barrow Cemetery limits in a field to the east. It is thought that a gallows once stood on top of mound five, in a prominent position near to a significant river crossing, and that the graves contained the bodies of criminals, possibly executed from the 8th and 9th centuries onward. The most famous burial, the Ship Burial, was discovered under Mound 1 in 1939 and contained one of the most magnificent archaeological finds in England for its size and its completeness, its far-reaching connections, the quality and the beauty of its contents, and for the profound public interest that it generated in the field of archaeology. Although practically none of the original timber survives, the form of the boat was perfectly preserved in the soil. Stains in the sand have replaced the wood, but had preserved many of its construction details. Nearly all of the iron planking rivets were in their original places. From this it was possible to survey the original ship, which was found to be 27 metres or 89 feet long, pointed at either end with a tall rising stem and stern posts, and widening to 4.4 metres, 14 feet, in the beam amidships, with an inboard depth of 1.5 metres, 4 feet 11 inches, over the keel line. From the keelboard, the hull was constructed with nine planks on either side, fastened with rivets. 26 wooden ribs strengthened the form. It was clear from the remains left that repairs had been made to the boat, indicating that it had once been a seagoing vessel, of quite excellent craftsmanship, but that it no longer had a descending keel. The decking and benches and the mast had also been removed. In the fore and the aft sections, along the gunnels, there were oar rests shaped like the Old English letter Thorn, indicating that there may have been positions for about 40 oarsmen. From this, it seems that the ship, which had once been a seagoing vessel, had been adapted and remade to be buried specifically, thus in the process losing much of its seagoing ability. The central chamber in which the ship was buried had timber walls at either end and a roof, which was probably pitched. The extremely heavy oak vessel had been hauled up from the river, up the hill and lowered into a prepared trench so that only the top of the stem and the stern posts rose above the land surface to protrude out of the barrow. After the body and the artefacts were placed inside, an oval mound was constructed to cover the ship. This burial was located on the side of Sutton Hoo closest to the nearby river, which in this period was quite an important trade route. The view of the river is now obscured by top hat wood, 
but at the time the mound would have been visible to people sailing along the waterway and would have served as a clear visible sign of power. This appears to have been the final occasion on which Sutton Hoo Cemetery was used for its original purpose of burial. When the mound was excavated in the 1930s, the chamber no longer existed as the wooden posts had rotted. The roof had eventually collapsed under the weight of the mound, which had compressed all of the contents of the ship deep down into the acidic earth. Thus, there was no body or ship found, and there was early speculation that Mound One had actually been a cenotaph rather than a burial, that is, it had been built without a body inside it. But soil analysis conducted in 1967 found phosphate traces supporting the view that a body had once been buried in Mound One and had been consumed by the acidic soil. The presence of a platform, or possibly a large coffin, that was about 9 feet or 2.7 metres long, was indicated in the middle of the boat. An iron-bound wooden bucket and an iron lamp containing beeswax and a bottle of North Continental manufacture were close by. The objects around the body indicate that it lay with its head at the west end of the wooden structure and its feet at the eastern end. The artefacts near the body, which have really been the main focus of all the popular attention on this burial, are quite grand and have been identified as regalia, possibly pointing to Mount Wan being the burial of a king. This suggestion of a royal burial here is further amplified by Sutton Hoo's proximity to the town of Rendlesham, which in the early medieval period did serve as a royal settlement for the kings of East Anglia. Since 1940, when H.M. Chadwick first suggested that the ship burial was probably the grave of Radwald, scholarly opinion has been divided on whether it was Radwald or one of his sons, or possibly his stepson, who was buried in Mound 1. The man who was buried under the mound cannot be identified, and there is nothing in the burial itself which gives any name to him. But the identification with Radwald is still widely discussed among scholars, and has achieved some popular acceptance, largely through the visitor centre built at Sutton Hoo today. Occasionally there are other identifications suggested, such as possibly the man being Radwald's son, Eopwald, who succeeded his father around 624. Radwald is the most likely candidate, though, because of the high quality of the imported and commissioned materials, and the resources needed to assemble them. As well as the authority that the gold was intended to convey, the community involvement required to build the barrow, and the close proximity to Rendlesham. Analysis of the Merovingian coins found in the burial indicates that their dates of burial was probably between 610 to 635. This lends some possibility to the suggestion that the buried man was either Radwald or possibly Aopwald. An interesting personal feature that we can discern from the burial in Mound 1 comes from the sword hilt of the weapon that was placed in the boat. From this hilt, it's been concluded that the occupant was left-handed, since its malleable gold pieces are worn down on the opposite side that would be expected if the owner was right-handed. This would also explain why the sword was placed on the right side of the body rather than on the more traditional left side of the body since the right-hand side would have been the one on which a left-handed wielder would hold the scabbard. To the left of the buried man's head 
was placed the famous masked helmet, which was wrapped in various cloths. With its panels of tinted bronze and its assembled mounts, the decoration is directly comparable to that found on helmets from the Vendel burial at Valskerda in Sweden. The Sutton Hoo helmet differs from the Swedish examples, though, in having an iron skull of a single vaulted shell and has a full face mask with a solid neck guard and very deep cheek pieces. These features have been used to suggest that a distinctly English pattern of helmet design existed, with similar types of helmets or fragments of helmets being found in other Anglo-Saxon cemeteries, and probably most famously in the Staffordshire Hoard. On the right side of the head, there was an inverted nest of about ten silver bowls, probably made in the Eastern Roman Empire in the 6th century. Beneath them were two silver spoons, also of Byzantine origin, of a type bearing the names of apostles. On one spoon is marked in Greek lettering the name Paulos, Paul, while on the other, matching spoon, it's been modified using letters of a Frankish coin die cutter to read Solos, or Saul. One theory suggests that the spoons, and maybe also the bowls, were baptismal gifts given to the person buried. In that case, if it was Radwald, probably given to him by Athelbert. To the body's right, there lay a set of spears, tips uppermost, with the heads thrust through the handle of a bronze bowl. Nearby was a wand with a small mount depicting a wolf, and closer to the body lay the sword with the gold and garnet close on a pommel, which I already discussed. Attached to this and lying towards the body was a sword harness and a belt, fitted with a suite of gold mounts and strap distributors of extremely intricate garnet cellwork ornament. The contents of Mound 1 have been extensively photographed and discussed in a lot of the primary literature on this topic, so I won't go through a full in-depth analysis of each individual object here because that would be quite boring. The main point about the Mound 1 burial is that it is an unusually and extraordinarily rich and lavish affair. The gold, the cloisonna, the textiles alone would be enough to show that this person was an extremely high-ranking individual in East Anglian society. Add in the sheer number of foreign-made objects ranging from Byzantium, Italy, and even Egypt, and it's immediately obvious that this grave reflects the influx of wealth and trade that came into East Anglia during Radwald's reign. Thus, even if Radwald isn't the one who is buried in Mount One, Sutton Hoo nevertheless reflects the immense wealth and the international prestige of East Anglia in the early 7th century. It is consequently, nevertheless, a testament to the importance of Radwald's reign. The man himself, though, is a strangely mercurial figure, whom Bede did not hold in particularly high regard. It seems odd, then, that his burial, or one deriving from his reign, should come to represent the Anglo-Saxons in the minds of so many people. Regardless, it offers a glimpse of the rich world of both the Anglo-Saxon elite and the objects that made up the daily lives of many English people in the early Middle Ages. And for my part, I will always be grateful for the amount of interest that the Sutton Hoo objects invariably inspire in people and encourage them to come and learn more about Anglo-Saxon history.
Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, I hope you'll join me again next time. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.